I pledge myself to the pod. Loyal I'll always be. A P to start, a D at the end, and an O sitting in between. Welcome back to an Omnia Paratus. I'm Jay, click the letter. And I'm Angela, also known as AVO. We are two friends diving to our past, present, evaluating if we were ever truly ready for anything. We discuss all things from the definition of dating to all the things school didn't prepare us for. Listen as we talk about career changes, give plenty of unsolicited opinions, and work on becoming the people we want to see in the world. As we are in the process of rebranding and aging up our podcast, I thought of this of my most practical topics that I wanted to have Angela share with me, us, we, queens, we, they, thems, everyone, is about medical advocacy. I don't know about anyone else, but like I still had my mom make my doctor's appointments through college. One, my doctor was not in the city in which I was going to school, so scheduling wasn't the easiest. And two, I don't know the psychology behind it, but it's one of those things where you like have your parents do until the last possible second if you happen to do it yourself. So the idea of on top of that having to like go into the office and be able to disagree or ask more questions or anything far out of my reach. I know Angela has a very different experience with this, but something that kind of had us originally bring up this discussion is one of our other favorite shows, Grey's Anatomy. Season 14, titled Don't Fear the Reaper. Is that like a sci-fi reference or like a Bible reference? Uh, we're, we're gonna go more Bible. Okay. Oh, also the Grim Reaper. So that would be sci-fi, yes? No, just general terms. But like, what's the Grim Reaper from? Isn't it from like mythology or like... Someone didn't just come up with the term. Was it in a movie, a book? I'm pretty sure this has been around for centuries. But like, where did it originate from? Like, is it, a, is it in a book? Is it in a movie, a hieroglyphic, Bigfoot? I was actually not prepared for this question, so I googled it really fast. The Grim Reaper, according to Google, uh, first appeared in 14th century Europe when dealing with the plague. So like someone just coined the term. Yes. I will update this more in the show notes, but this is what I'm getting. Got it. Okay, so back to the actual episode. Miranda Bailey goes to a neighboring hospital, not Grace Sloan Memorial. I think she has a Seattle Presbyterian. Yes. That's really not the point. She goes in and tells the doctor she is having a heart attack. For those who don't know Grey's Anatomy, Miranda Bailey was chief resident, now chief of general surgery, and now chief of all surgery at this point, I believe? Yes. So she's pretty experienced in the medical field, one could say. Goes in to this hospital because she doesn't want to go to her own and scare her colleague and tells the doctor or whoever sees her, I'm having a heart attack. No one believes her. No one takes it seriously. They ask her if she's stressed. She also has OCD. She's been diagnosed with OCD. So people go to psychology. They keep trying to refer her to a psychologist rather than give her the medical help she needs as she's pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to get the help she knows she needs as the chief of surgery at what I'm assuming is the number one hospital in Seattle. Eventually she brings over some of her colleagues and gets treated for the heart attack that she knew she was having. So Angela and I started discussing this kind of experience and kind of what they showed. And in the show, they give some statistics. And although the medical accuracy of Grey's Anatomy isn't top notch, they typically do when pushing or bringing up a social issue, do have relatively accurate statistics, I hope. So this was something that I had never really thought of, experienced, known to be a systemic issue until I talked to Angela about this episode afterward. Your turn. I have to admit, I was a little bit shocked when we first started this conversation because I I didn't realize that we had never talked about this before. Just to piggyback off of what Jay started telling us here is that when Dr. Miranda Bailey came into the hospital with her heart attack, she did not come in with a classic set of symptoms. She came in with heartburn. Define classic symptoms. So technically with heart attacks, chest pain and or discomfort is still the most common symptom for both men and women. However, research has shown us that most women are more likely to experience other less classic symptoms like pain in the arm, neck or jaw, or just like Bailey experience only nausea, indigestion or vomiting. And oh my gosh, the second I saw her pop the antacid in the car, I knew exactly where this episode was going to go. 
She was having a heart attack. She wasn't going to be treated properly. They were going to bring her mental health into it. And she would most likely be near death, if not die. Because unfortunately, this is something that happens to so many women and people of color in this country. And it's something that's only started to really gain traction with people in the past few years. So before we start out our episode here, I just want to let everyone know we are not doctors, nurses, or scientists. We have no connection to the medical field. And though we do consider ourselves students of Grey's Anatomy, we cannot actually give you any legal medical recommendations. So today, we are here to discuss and bring awareness to some of the conversations happening now regarding patient care and equity throughout the United States. In setting up our outline, we realized that this would be best explored as an ongoing series. So today, we're starting out with a focus on discrimination at the heart of the system. In the healthcare field, it might not always be easy to spot discrimination, but if you feel like you've ever been dismissed, unheard or misunderstood, talked down to, not given access to tests or medication, refused treatment, or if you even need to leave the area you live in for adequate treatment, we don't think you're crazy and you didn't read too much into the situation. There is a very high chance that this was related to discrimination. And that can come in a variety of forms. It can be related to race, gender, sexual orientation, weight, or age. It could be related to a physical disability, chronic illness, mental health, or your insurance status. And you could even face multifaceted discrimination where one or more of these areas is used to negatively qualify you. But for the purpose of our discussion today, because we are using Miranda Bailey as our premise, we are focusing mainly on systemic racism. So Jay. Sounds like you're ready for a TED talk. Holy shit. Oh, I know. I had to I had to create a very large disclaimer here because we are not trying to cancel anyone. We are not trying to create any sort of divide or schism here. We just want to have a conversation and we want everybody to be aware of what's going on. Yes. And just a quick little addendum as if I have much to add to this conversation. It's hard enough to advocate for yourself as in my belief when I think the system is on my side. Not completely. Yes, insurance, bureaucracy, red tape, all of that is something that I'm sure you can research yourself. Google is a great place to start. I know most of us have access to it libraries, newspapers, something. But when those factors aside, you think you can trust your doctor and what they're recommending, it's already hard enough to ask the right questions and to disagree with someone who has such an education and who you know goes through all of this process. And then it's even harder now knowing when discrimination within the teaching and profiling is added onto that. Exactly. Because when you go to the doctor, you're most likely not feeling well or you're already scared because something weird is happening to your body. So of course you want to trust the people you're working with. And most times because they are the officials in this scenario, we don't really think to question it either. But unfortunately, sometimes you have to. So today we have a lot of different studies and statistics, personal anecdotes, and a whole host of advocacy tips for you. But in the interest of not giving you informational overload, we're going to try to keep this to an hour and we're going to touch on a variety of topics quickly and if you have any additional questions or comments or concerns or would like to see our research you can visit our show notes at www.inomniapod.com and search for today's episode under the podcast tab or like jay said we encourage you to do your own research in google library medical journal all that good stuff here here so jay close to a gavel i can make <laughs> so Jay, because there seems to be some confusion about this lately, I have a definition of racism. May I read this into the record? You may. I do have a little bit of a concern that you spell discrimination, like discrimination on this entire document I'm looking at. <laughs> oh yeah. And racism, like race schism. Wait, really? And it didn't catch it? My grammar always catching a bunch of stuff. Ooh, this is this is gonna be really fun as I read through my notes here, everyone. We'll see how many of these things I, I pronounce incorrectly. The definition of racism according to according to the American Association of Family Practitioners. I tried to okay. pull all the knowledge from medical sources here, and I think that they actually did a good job. So they 
So they define racism as a system that categorizes people based on their race, color, ethnicity, and culture to create double standards that reward some and restrict and impact others negatively. Systemic racism is the establishment of prejudicial policies and procedures as the standard within an organization's foundation, governance, or educational system that directly influences the practices and patterns of its participants and is specifically meant to penalize or exploit people because of their race, color, culture, or ethnic origin. Now, I think it's important and worth noting that this is not a white versus non-white conversation, and this isn't about bashing or blaming anyone because of their color. We want to be very clear on that, but a lot of the statistics that we're pulling today are measured in terms of privilege, and in this case, privilege rests with a few and not really with minorities. So what we would like is for everyone to reflect on this and see what they can do to recognize their own privilege and how they can help others. So in the healthcare field, this type of privilege affects everything from doctor-patient interactions, scheduling appointments, insurance status, treatment options and plans, access to medication, and even more. And I think like Jay said earlier, this cycle starts with education, the education of our medical professionals. I think, I hope, most people listening to this and people in our country learn racism exists. It's here. It's one of the forms of one group having more than another. And I think we all kind of understand the history within that. If not, there are plenty of great people to follow and resources to look into again. But I think the more important conversation that we're going to get into is systemic racism because I feel like it's one that is harder to quantify when one in a position of privilege doesn't feel that privilege because of their very valid other hardships or things they've overcome to get to the point they are. Mm -hmm. Did that make sense? Yes. I think it's important to remember, we said earlier, we understand that discrimination happens in a variety of ways, but this also isn't a measure of one person's struggle being more valid or important or difficult than another's. This is rough. <laughs> it is. And we understand that this is a hard conversation to have, especially in your everyday life when you've never thought about it before. So if it if it takes a minute, it takes a minute. We're happy to give you that minute. Did you want me to put in a minute of silence? <laughs> no, it's okay. I don't think we need one there. We have, we have too much information to share today. So the education system, the textbooks, the studies that our doctors are learning from in America are incredibly biased and are a direct correlation, causation of the systemic racism in this country. Now, not every study is, However, a lot of the foundational ones are. Mm -hmm. The one example I'm going to go into before I'm sure Angela can go into a plethora of, I recently learned that the BMI scale was only tested on white men, meaning for anyone who is not a white man, this study doesn't really accurately figure out your body composition and your health index. Me being someone who has a endocrinology problem, this study impacted my life since elementary school. And learning that this study didn't have any results based on Asian women, women period, they just took the male numbers and did a proportion and was like, yeah, this should be right for women, was so vindicating and then also so traumatic. I think it's absolutely ridiculous because how on earth could they think to apply something like that to half the population without any sort of real research? And it's the standard for school. I don't know about in your county, but in mine, to pass the physical fitness test, BMI was one of the tests. So if you didn't pass the BMI test, it was one of the reasons you had to retake PE. And just the idea that that was a factor of whether or not you could not take physical education anymore was based on something as, I don't want to say trivial because I think health is important, but BMI is not an accurate representation of health. And that did not matter. I have friends who can't put on weight. I have friends oh, completely. who put on a lot of weight, but they're also, it doesn't take into account football players, bodybuilders. There are so many things outside of that and people who would just fail that test and it would be one ding against them from the start of this freaking physical fitness test mm -hmm. is literally no indication of health. I think the most damaging thing that we hear from health professionals is 
oh, you're skinny. It's okay. You're fine. You're healthy. Your weight is not an indication of your health. Like just because you're skinny, it doesn't mean that you're fit. It doesn't mean that you're eating well. It doesn't mean that you're getting the proper nutrients that you need. And just because you don't necessarily fall into the idea of a range of normal doesn't mean that you're unhealthy either. I know people who also have endocrinology issues and they're some of the fittest people that I know, even though they don't necessarily conform to the idea of skinny and healthy. So I think overall, we just need to, we need to abolish that. Get rid of the BMI 2021. Yep. There's my soapbox. What is yours? <laughs> well, it's funny that you touched on the textbooks because that's actually mine. So I wasn't aware of this until last summer in a TikTok, but it, <laughs> this actually started in 2017. Yes, that, that's my one play to Gen Z today. Hi, I, I use TikTok. I'm not a total boomer. Um, <laughs> I mean, mine was on TikTok too, so. <laughs> TikTok brought these things to our attention. They are not the foundation of the claims and studies we are citing and referencing today. These brought us, ignited something for us to research and look into using medical journals, medical textbooks, credible sources in this field. TikTok is not the source of our information, nor should it be for everyone listening to this. Thank you. Yeah, everyone, please don't trust all of that TikTok info out there. Like everyone who's getting their tax information and advice from TikTok. Stocks. Maybe don't do that. Stocks, yeah, maybe don't do that. Not all of it is exactly legal. Moving on. Yes, I first saw this in a TikTok. But it actually led me back to the original articles bringing light to the issue in 2017 when students started to share some of the patient care stereotypes that that they were presented in textbooks. So I'm going to read you some of them right now, Jay, and you tell me on a scale of 1 to 10 how outraged you are. Okay. I'm always outraged. So we started at about a four if we're being honest, but I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. So number one. Jews may be more vocal no, and demanding of assistance. Not. How? No, no, <laughs> no. Okay. Hispanics may believe that pain is a form of punishment and that suffering must be endured if they are to enter heaven. I feel for all of my friends and sorority sisters and people I affiliate with who are of that group. Very, not objectified. What was the word we were going with? Outraged. There we go. I'm outraged (laughs) for them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, listeners, I will tell you right now, if anyone ever told me if I denied pain medication, anyone ever came back and said, oh, it's okay. You'll get into heaven anyway. I'd be very confused and a little angry. Are these all from the same textbook? No. So these are from three different textbooks. Okay. Um, Asians are hesitant to have their blood drawn because they believe it steals their life force. Isn't that like more Jehovah's Witness? Don't they actually believe that? I'm not 100% sure, but it. I know that there's, there is a feeling about giving blood and receiving blood there. So we will look into that. Got it. I just want to know how many doctors, I want to know the people who thought of these things, hopefully researched and talked to people of these Asians, Latins, Jews group, and then felt they had the authority to make these statements to be printed in textbooks to how medical students would treat all patients of these groups. Because there are a lot of stop points along the way. So, oh yeah. So looking into this, I actually was able to find that these stereotypes are not only decades old, but they were disproven a long time ago. But it's still being presented as information for people to draw from when interacting with patients. And okay, so we're actually going to get into this later in the episode as well. But you have a guaranteed right to express your cultural and religious beliefs to your doctor, and they must respect those in relation to your care. So while patient background is important for everyone to consider and to have a basis of going in, it's so much more important to actually interact with your patients and ask those questions to understand how they are feeling in that moment and what is going on with them. So I actually, I have like 10 other examples, but we're moving it along here because I think that this is where we get into the basis of implicit bias in the healthcare system. So now we're into patient care. So that was where the information that our medical professionals are learning starts and now we're going into their practice. Right. Because it's been presented. So now 
when these students go out and they start their rounds, rounds, residency, rotations, the learning portion of their studies, when they encounter something that looks even a little bit like this, it has the potential to reinforce the stereotype without actually being directly related to it, or if they hear another one of their colleagues say something about it, that's what starts to build that bias into your head. Do we have any examples? Just so we're all on the same page here, implicit bias is the process of associating stereotypical characteristics or attitudes to a person, group, or thing subconsciously. And in healthcare, this could manifest in a variety of ways, such as a doctor unknowingly having a preference for one group over another, a person being denied treatment for something that cannot happen to them, or not being given an entire set of treatment options because a doctor or nurse assumes that they are unable to understand the information. Rude. Right? So I've, I've got more statistics here, but just so we all understand why implicit bias is not okay, because unfortunately we need to break this down a little bit because I don't know about you, but I've actually had several people try to tell me in the past year that prejudice is not always a bad thing. Some of the most confusing conversations I've ever had. Yeah, I don't understand that. And then I'm going to be completely honest here for a second because I feel like more people need to understand implicit bias. I had some rough middle school experiences with black and Latino students. My teachers would pair me with them in projects and in the process of that would get pencil stolen, would get called a racist for not letting them cheat. It shaped the way I acted for years and it didn't, I didn't want it to, I didn't mean it to. I feel like I love and want to fight for the rights of everyone and try to include everyone. But when you have those negative experiences, you associate things with them. And it's really hard to stop and to call yourself out on those associations. Exactly. And I think just another thing that we all need to recognize here, everybody has some type of implicit bias. It just happens. Unfortunately, within the way that our society is set up and the different structures that we have here, it happens way too easily. I mean, and the whole part of implicit bias is that we don't even realize that it's happened. I feel like the problem is when our brains are meant to recognize patterns. So if every day, hypothetically, Angela, you were pushed into a locker by a person X race, you would feel something about of X race, whether you mean to or not, because, and it's harder to unwarn things, especially when they're traumatic. Mm -hmm. And part of the work that we all need to do is begin to understand why we think these things and how we can move into a more equitable and understanding place in the future. And I will actually, well, no, here, you know what? We can talk about it now. Did you know, Jay, there is actually a test now that can measure your implicit bias? Oh, yeah, there are several. I've taken them. Oh, okay. I did not know that. The question that is posed most often when initially addressing it is, how can we fault someone for something that they are not even aware of? And to put it simply, implicit bias is very damaging precisely because of this reason. When it's harder to recognize, it's more often categorized as a one-off glitch in the system that can be excused away. So when we start to open up the conversation and actually focus on self-examination, that's when we see the outline of that door for change. A quick other note I've been listening to a lot. I recently converted Angela and a few of our other friends to Bachelor Nation. I'm sure if you're anywhere near Instagram or anywhere in the vicinity, you understand some of the issues that have been brought up and brought to light with the franchise. And as I've been listening to podcasts and things from contestants who are in the BIPOC community, one of the main things, especially with when on summer and what's going on now, is when looking at systemic racism, implicit bias, racism, we can't look at ourselves under the moral grounds of good versus bad because no one wants to consider themselves bad nor really mm -hmm. wants to look at themselves in that way. So that needs to be removed from the conversation, especially with implicit bias. Implicit bias sounds crappy because just think of having to admit to yourself, wow, I really look, treat X differently because of insert middle school story here or insert bad breakup here or insert thing on the news here, my brain has now recognized a pattern that is one of the foundational ways of how I move through the world and it's harming others. Mm -hmm. I think most compassionate people, that's a hard thing 
to admit. I will say, at least for me, that's a very hard thing to come to terms with, that this isn't about being a good person or a bad person. It's about fundamentally having to tell myself and teach myself to call those things out. I don't think, I mean, this is a little off topic. I don't think we'll ever end implicit bias, but I think we need to be better at catching it and calling it out in ourselves and others when we see it. I don't think I could have said it better. I'm sure you could have. English major. (laughs) You're doing all the math this time. I know. I'm really sorry, guys. I'll have Jay check the math after this. Um, no. Um, Especially as we now... (laughs) Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll find someone to check the math after this. Especially now as we move into our fact or fiction section, where we're going to measure some of the statistics that we have gained through studies and implicit bias. So, Jay. Am I guessing if these are real statistics or whether they're true or not? Whether they're true or not. So, Jay. Fact or fiction. Non-white patients are more passive and do not accurately prioritize their health care. I would say that one's probably false if I were to take a very wild guess. Oh my gosh, and you're right. Non-white patients are more often blamed for being passive in their health care. However, studies have shown that more than often, this is not the case. Black men and women actually lead the national statistics in high blood pressure, and this has long been attributed to lifestyle choices and their considered apathy towards seeking treatment. However, recent studies have actually shown that Black patients also lead the way in missed opportunities for medical intervention for blood pressure control. So this- Is this because they aren't advocating or because they're being misdiagnosed? This means they're not being diagnosed at all. So basically what this shows is that even when tests showed that they had high blood pressure and it was recorded by their doctor or nurse, they were still not prescribed medication or marked as needed for follow-ups regarding future intervention. Some patients involved in this study had missed opportunity upwards of 20 times that their doctor could have addressed it but didn't. Even when all things were considered equal, such as good diet and exercise regimen, yearly physicals, uh, active insurance status, and access to the same doctors, their blood pressure was, their high blood pressure was seen and just written off. I don't even have words. What's next? Right? So, fact or fiction? White patients are admitted to the emergency room more often than non-white patients. Again, wild guess, and I don't know what in the Mercury horoscopes like making me feel this way, but I'm gonna go with true. Yes, it is true. So non-white patients are actually less likely to be admitted for emergency services. Studies have shown that on intake, they are often found as not in need and sent home or made to wait. And these numbers are about half and half. So to put this in perspective, in my very basic math terms, six white patients would be admitted to admit one Black, one Hispanic, one Asian, one South Asian, one Jewish, and one Muslim patient into the ER. So it's basically a one-to-one ratio. Is that right? Well, one-to-one means equal. It's one to six. Oh, okay. Sorry. It is a one-to-six ratio. Jay does the math. Good try, sweetie. Right. Yep. While waiting in the emergency room, Black patients also have a higher chance of dying while waiting than any other race. Fact or fiction, Black women are 41% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. True. This is true. A 2020 research, the earliest research study I could find on this actually, showed that Black women are less likely to develop breast cancer than any other race, but they are the most likely to die from it. Jeez. I know. So the research has shown that they're more likely to develop it at a younger age, And so the standard, necessarily the standard age for breast cancer, but 50 and over is when breast cancer is considered to be normal, as in they expect biological defects to start forming. Under 50 is very rare, and they often have a more aggressive form called triple negative breast cancer, which means that it doesn't have the three main genes that most treatments seek to inhibit in other breast cancers. I'm going to need you to rephrase that. So they have a type of breast cancer that all most treatments do not work for. This, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So triple negative breast cancer is... Is it diagnosed differently? So that I'm a little bit unclear on, but they are 20 to 30% more likely to have this form of breast cancer, but they also are the least screened and least properly screened group. Or when it actually is found, a lot of them are referred to wait and see. So my mom is not black but this happened to her and I'm 
very passionate about this. When I was in the fourth grade, she was diagnosed with stage zero breast cancer, which is which is, is very lucky because it's when the cancer is at its smallest, it hasn't spread a lot, there's a lot that you can do for it. The doctor who found it told her that it was nothing she should wait and see, come back in a year, but it was definitely cancer. So my mom was like, no, absolutely not. I would like a second opinion. He refused to give her a second opinion. She had to go out of her insurance network, find a doctor who would treat her, and then go out and get completely separate scans and all of this stuff for this treatment. In total, she was really lucky. I think it took her about eight months from diagnosis to her mastectomy, and she has been cancer-free ever since. But the fact that, thank you, yes, but the fact that a doctor literally saw cancer and wanted to wait and see what happened is mind-blowing. I'm not like being a white man here playing devil's advocate, but like I genuinely have a question about this. Mm -hmm. Why would a doctor whether it's through their training, they're not like their bias, but like what is the thought process of telling someone with cancer to wait and see, to see if it can go away like HPV can, to see how it develops, to see where it spreads. Like why would a doctor think it's all right, not morally, but like medically to tell someone with the cancer diagnosis to wait and see? I don't know if I know how to answer this. So like, I, I'm not I justified. Like, I don't think there's any justification for telling this, but I want oh. to know the medical, like, if this is a common practice, what are doctors taught or thinking to tell someone with a cancer diagnosis that they can wait? So I don't think that this is necessarily a common practice at all. I think that this doctor saw my mother, who I I was a late in life baby. My mom was actually lucky enough that when I was in first grade, she was able to take an early retirement and stay home with me. So this doctor saw a non-white woman without a job and an expensive surgery. So he gave her, so he told her that it would be better to wait and see what happened down the line. But wait for what though? Breast cancer is not, exactly. Breast cancer is not one of those things that just goes away. He more likely thought like, oh, she can't afford treatment, so I'm not even going to give it to her. But then the fact that he made it so hard for her to even see someone else is astounding. Question. Yes. Did your mom work for the healthcare system at this time or was that after? That was after. Okay. Little side tip for everyone. If you happen to work for the healthcare system, you usually get really great insurance. You usually don't have a problem going in for anything. So if you do work for the healthcare system, congratulations. You're pretty lucky. I'm just going to throw this here as my completely own opinion. Or if you're a senator or the president or an ex-president or a family member of any of those I just listed, they get really good health care. And Angela, do you know who provides this health care to them? It's part of their package, as the business would say. The people of this country. Yes, they are on government health care. And it's really good health care. I don't really know what it includes. If I'm going to be completely honest, again, a quick Google will tell you. They get really good health care for life. And it's tax-paid, government-funded healthcare. In my opinion, and only my opinion, some of these people actively advocating for private health insurance are guaranteed public amazing health insurance till they die. Mm-hmm. But let's all take a deep breath. USA, as I was taught. Where's that from? L. I don't know what culture it's from or anything, but USA oh, okay. is the word of like calm. Okay. Fact or fiction? Asians cannot be alcoholics because they are ADLH2 deficient. What what is that? Um okay, so you might know this as Asian glow. It's where you some Asians have an enzyme deficiency of ADLH2 and it basically means that their body has a harder time metabolizing certain enzymes within the alcohol and it causes facial flushing. Huh. I mean, obviously, since like, I don't know any Asian alcoholics, like that just must be true. It's actually fiction. What? So that was a joke. I, I feel like, unfortunately, like, I will be putting this in the thing. Angela one has not been on the sarcasm game too. And a joke that I think people need to realize that just because you don't personally have an experience does not mean that experience doesn't exist within your city, state, country, planet, universe as I have recently been getting into the MCU, which we will be discussing in another episode, other planetary <laughs> beings. Oh, my sarcasm game really has been bad. It's the quarantine. But yes, 
This false misconception actually came about because doctors were found to be less likely to address addiction in the Asian community. In past research statistics, Asians had the lowest numbers in association with alcohol and drug addiction, but when they started actually investigating these numbers to see if they could prove this, they found that they were underdiagnosing by about 20%. So there are two working theories as to how this happened, because this research is still pretty new. One, some doctors believed that of the ADLH2 deficiency and facial flushing, it was impossible for Asians to be alcoholics. The second one is that doctors were putting too much store into the model minority myth and the idea a successful group of people could fall into addiction was not something that they could easily wrap their minds around. That is terrible. Right? So I'm just, I just have one question for you and then we're going to go into the what to do. But I have one question for you. Okay. So this term that's recently come out, BIPOC, Black, Blank, and People of Color. Why haven't I heard that much about Indigenous people during this lovely chat? So Jay, that is an excellent question. I promise, Indigenous people, I did not try to leave you out. Unfortunately, there are not that many statistics and research projects going on that feature many people of indigenous descent. So within the healthcare community right now, medical professionals of indigenous descent, and by that I mean Native American and Hawaiian, measure at about 4%. Oh, and maybe Alaskan as well. I will double check that for the show notes, but that's 4%. And then as far as studies going into how different things affect indigenous peoples, I haven't found very many. So I used the, okay, I equate this to Gray's Anatomy, which was the NIH, which is not correct. I think it's the NIHI or NIHC is where I pulled a lot of my research studies from. Most of them feature zero to 5% indigenous people within their studies. Which is not enough on colonized land. It is not. Okay, so now, if you made it this far, congratulations. I would give a timestamp, but frankly, I'm afraid of how long this is gonna go and how much this can be. I would love to cut this in two parts. However, I think leaving just with the information that was given, that it's kind of dark and sucks. But now, let's go with the area of expertise in which I wanted you to speak of, which is how to advocate, when to advocate. I think why to advocate, we've already just covered quite a bit. <laughs> but when and how are the best practices anyone, particularly as we can tell, we have particularly wanting for BIPOC individuals, but how can anyone get a firmer grasp on speaking to their doctor, asking for a second opinion, all of that? I guess the first question I'll ask personally is, I'm not a hypochondriac, but I do WebMD and Mayo Clinic. I know, let's not get at me. No, it's bad. Knowledge is power. However, I think no matter how much Ray's Anatomy or WebMD I'm on, I will not have the knowledge of someone who goes to medical school. So I always feel kind of, well, they're the doctor, they know better. But how do I know that point of when my body is telling me something that I need to get a second opinion and not just WebMD told me I'm dying today because I sneezed. <laughs> it's okay. I do that too. Okay. So, okay. I'm not going to lie. I do WebMD and all of that too. I usually do it after I've gone to the doctor though. Okay. So I'd like to hear what they have to say first, because like you said, we don't know as much as they do. But at the same time, just within the interest of making sure that everything has been looked at well, I like to look up what my diagnosis has been and then go through some of the symptoms and look at the treatments that other places are doing and see if I should ask any questions about these other things. I think this is also really helpful as well if you're not necessarily given a firm diagnosis either. If you go in and doctors say, oh, well, it could be this or it could be that. We're going to have to do some more tests and see what's going on. Look up the tests. Look up what those two things are. See if there's anything else that's related to it. Do not go back to your doctor and say, I think I have this or WebMD told me that because unfortunately, I don't even think this is really specific to doctors. I think that this can happen to anyone in any line of work. If someone comes to you in your expert field and tells you, well, I think it's this because the internet told me that, they don't exactly take too kindly to that. That's why we can't use Wikipedia as a source. Exactly. So I think that it's just about knowing your symptoms, knowing your body, knowing what your baseline is. So example for me, I know that 
my temperature runs about 97.3. Same. So when I'm, yeah, so when I'm at 98.9, I feel like I have a fever. When I get to 99, I'm absolutely miserable. So when I go into the doctor, I'm like, oh, it's just a low-grade fever. It's fine. I'm like, no, look again. This is my version of 100. That makes sense. So just, so trust, but verify. Exactly. Trust, but verify. And then if you have that, oh, what's the word for it? Inkling intuition. If you have that gut feeling that something's wrong, something's been missed, or if you don't still don't have a solid diagnosis after two or three visits, you can totally seek out a second opinion on your own. You can let your doctor know, depending upon how your healthcare network is set up, you can schedule an appointment with another person. Sometimes you can even go directly to a specialist, but I think in most cases you actually still need a referral. Um, I'm not going to lie, seeing a specialist can be hard because it can be expensive. There's often wait times. I think the average wait time in the U.S to see a specialist is about 40 days. Yeah. So if you're not feeling great, that can seem interminable. I know when my IBS was being diagnosed, I was on a wait list to see a specialist that was four months. And so I still actually hadn't been diagnosed. I was in horrible pain. I actually ended up in the ER and oh my God. Okay. I I get that this, I think I scared the doctor because I was telling him that I had been in really horrible stomach pain for almost a year. And he kind of looked a little panicked and he's like, this could be cancer. Why didn't you come in? I've been trying to come in, sir. I've been on wait lists for months. I heard this on TikTok, but I think it's a good practice. And I'm sure Angela with all of her research and knowledge can back this up. If the doctor you're seeing refuses to run more tests, give you a second opinion, any sort of obstruction to some of the care you feel you deserve or need, tell them to put that in your chart that they're refusing extra assistance for you, right? Hmm. No? I actually haven't heard of that one. I've heard of documenting when you are refusing a treatment plan, but that that does make sense. The one thing I will say to that though is that I've heard a lot of firsthand accounts and have actually experienced this myself too, where not everything is noted into my chart. So what I started doing was writing down everything that I talked about post-visit so that way if I did ever need to see another doctor Mm -hmm. I had a record of it in my own words and I think this is actually really helpful to going into any doctor patient visit whether it's in the hospital or just seeing your regular primary caregiver write down all of your symptoms track what's been going on in tangible ways when I move this way this happens when I eat this this happens when on the third day of every month I get a migraine keep a record of it and you can literally hand that to your doctor and when they can see all of your symptoms lined up together they're actually more likely to give you a better diagnosis on the first try. This is also really helpful as well if there's any potential language barriers between you and your doctor because you also have a record to give to a translator. The one thing I would say though is that if you're ever handing this over, get it back or keep a second copy of it because that way if you do need a second opinion or you need to see a specialist, you have that record in your own words to go along with your medical chart. Got it. So kind of to summarize, spark note, cliff note, all of this, it's if you think something's wrong, ideally track it as long as you can, note it, calendar, so you can see your doctor. They will recommend hopefully something and then look into those things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's a little bit for more kind of advice for someone like me who actively likes to go to the doctor. Not like I, like I go more than I need to, but I take full advantage of my healthcare and the things that come with it because I unfortunately currently it is a privilege and it's a privilege and prevention is easier than treatment. So Mm -hmm. I actively go to my six month checkups, get my blood work done for health things I need and take advantage of all the resources I can. But what about for people who for all of the things we described don't go to the doctor or are afraid to go or have had bad experiences? So I think, so if you're uneasy about going to the doctor, I think that one, it's important, just make that first step, make the appointment, keep the appointment, do everything that you can to make yourself comfortable. You can bring someone with you, like a family member or friend that you trust to sit with you in the waiting room. You can even ask for them to come into the exam room with you or after your exam when you're speaking with your doctor. During non-pandemic times. During non-pandemic times. Yes, I know. It's very sad. But so unfortunately, during COVID times, we can't do this. But trust me, having someone with you can be a really big source of comfort. 
So I was actually reading about body doubles in the ADHD sense where one person will sit with another person who has ADHD and their physical presence makes it easier for them to focus or handle difficult tasks. And I think that something similar happens here when you bring someone with you to the doctor's office. Additionally, with that list of symptoms that you wrote down, you can also write down questions and this person can help you go through those questions and push for answers if you feel like you're just being dismissed. I have a list of questions here, but I'm actually just gonna leave these in the show notes for you all, but they cover what to do, on your first visit, your second visit, follow-ups, if you need surgery, all kinds of things like that. And then also, I think it's very important for, I know you haven't really touched on this yet, but just going along with this and bringing someone with you. I think that it's important to know your family history. So if you can bring a family member with you who can help you flush out your family history for your profile, this will actually help your doctor get these things entered into your medical record and actually help you set up preventative treatment plans for things like heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, certain cancers, strokes, or even rarer disorders. Um, I, I do know that if you're adopted or if you don't exactly have that relationship with your family, this can be a little difficult. So while it's helpful, it's also not the only thing that you can do. I think the next step here in making sure that you're setting yourself up for success is finding the right doctor. And sometimes this takes some time, but if it's your primary care physician, you're going to interact with them all the time from everything from strep throat to sprained ankles. And if you're looking for something more specialized, you're more likely to have a set series of appointments, but it's still important to feel comfortable because you want to be able to connect and communicate openly and constructively with this person. Because essentially, you're collaborating on your life. That's important. That's a good way to put it. Some people may prefer a soft bedside manner, others may prefer a more to-the-point approach, but ultimately, after your visits, think about if you feel heard if you feel that your care plan has been prescribed in your best interest, and if you feel comfortable going back to this doctor. And then do your research just to see if there's anything that you need to touch on in your aftercare visit, especially if you've been asked for a follow-up. All good things. I think that normally these words are ones I don't have in my vocabulary and also are very obnoxious, but you are entitled to have a good relationship with your doctor. You deserve to get medically treated for what you think you have or what you do have. And you really need to put yourself first because like Angela said, this is your livelihood. This is your future. This is your existence to not get too deep, but kind of. And those things, there are great doctors and there are great staff who will advocate for your test and who will give you these things. So you just, you don't need to settle, period. Exactly. Even in your everyday life, you can seek out a new primary caregiver. Like depending upon your health network, the process varies from company, from facility to facility facility to facility, insurance provider, even the state, but you can do it and you're entitled to do it through, which I was going to walk us through here, but we, we've taken up so much of your time already, the patient bill of rights. So I'm going to summarize this really fast. First, every healthcare facility, most insurance providers, and each state actually have their own of these. So depending upon where you are, look it up know it. These are rights that are guaranteed to you as a patient and must be respected. Are these through hospital chains or per state? Like, can we put a resource so people can find theirs or is it per per what? It totally depends. Some states have them, some don't. Like, okay. some you just have to go through the healthcare provider. It'll take some research, but these are guaranteed to you. And so every state and every providers are actually going to be a little different, but these are the core rights. One, you have the right to information, which is the right to know everything about the nature of your diagnosis, your care options, the risks and benefits involved, and this now involves informed consent as well, which is the authorization from a patient to receive medical intervention after having a full discussion about the intervention plan with the doctor. Also, this should be noted in writing in your medical chart, and you can go back to that at any time. Second is your right to personal respect, which ensures that your cultural and religious beliefs will be honored in regards to your treatment. This also includes the right to ask for and receive visits from religious persons and observances of modesty. Third is your right to choose visitors and advocates. At any time, you can enable or restrict visitors in your regular office visits or in the hospital, and this includes family and outside persons. You have complete control over who you can see, and you also have the right to ask for a nurse to be present during exams or to see a social worker during your visit. 
Fourth is the right to care and the right to emergency care. You have the right to know who is on your medical team, know how they're making decisions. You have the right to make the decision to remove them at any time if you feel that your quality of care has diminished. And if you need emergency services, you cannot be denied. I. It doesn't matter if it's a public or private hospital, in your insurance network, three states away from you live. If you have an emergent condition, they have to treat you. That is their right. That is your right, and they are legally obligated to do that. Fifth is the right to privacy, which ensures that your medical information is not shared without your approval and also entitles you to full access to a copy of your medical file. And sixth is the right to complain and appeal. This means that you have the right to lodge any complaints about your care provider, wait times, lack of services provided, and the actions of healthcare personnel. And I believe that the standard is that these must be accounted for by the entity that you have made the complaint to within 180 days. So yeah, so that is the patient bill of rights. That's the summary? Yes, that is the summary. It's been around since 1980. I know it's a lot of information, but a lot of people don't know this. And I think it's so important that when you go in, especially to a hospital, that you know that you have these rights. Most definitely. Just in kind of our wrap up here, the second part of the advocacy is things we all as human beings deserve and should get and should put into practice. However, through our experiences and being women of color, we need to do it even more because the system unfortunately as a whole, not individual doctors, not individual hospitals, medical facilities, people, but these systems were not made for us. But We're here to try to change that. Or at least inform you. Or at least inform you of how you can get the best out of your treatment. We'll start there and then hopefully we'll change it. I know. We'll actually, we'll save this story for our next medical episode. But one of my aunts actually believes that she officially got hospital policy changed through an observation of hers. Nice. Good for her. Yeah. So we know it's been a lot of information today. We ultimately, we hope you found it helpful. And if there's anything you want to know more on, please don't be shy. Head over to the podcast website and check out the show notes. We've got a ton of links there for you. Or DM us and I will make sure Angela's the one to answer. <laughs> that too. And on that note, thank you for listening to this episode of In Omnia Paratus. Grab your coffee bowl and don't forget to rate, download, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, where you lead will follow, so head on over to at InOmniaPod on Instagram and let us know what you want to hear about in the comments. Bye! Bye!